Good evening. Welcome to our annual Tenebrae service. The word Tenebrae means darkness and refers specifically to a service of worship in which the progressive extinguishing of candles represents the death of our Lord Jesus on the cross. The Tenebrae service is one of prolonged and intentional meditation on the suffering of Christ. Tenebrae has been observed in the church since the 4th century, and in this service of prayer and contemplation, we remember the death of our Lord as we recall his seven last words on the cross. If you would, take up your bulletins and we'll begin. Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, and my peace I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and neither let them be afraid. The peace, the Lord be with you.
surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let us remember Jesus, who, though rich, became poor and dwelt among us, who was mighty indeed, healing the sick and the troubled, who, as teacher to his disciples, was their companion and servant. Let us remember Jesus, who prayed for the forgiveness of those who rejected him and for the perfecting of those who received him, who loved all people and prayed for them, even if they denied and rejected him, who hated sin because he knew the cost of pride and selfishness, of cruelty and hatred, both to people and to God. May we ever be grateful for our Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. Let us remember Jesus, who humbled himself, obedient unto the cross. God has exalted him who has redeemed us from the bondage of sin and given us new freedom. May we be ever grateful for our Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done and continues to do for us. The first word, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The practice of Lent calls us to reflect upon the uncomfortable and the things that we don't like to talk about with everyone else. It also, it, it does so in order to draw us into repentance and turn towards the Lord God. The practice of Lent calls us to reflect upon our sin and our sinful passions that we are so easy to ignore. But it also calls us to reflect upon our own mortality, which is why we begin every Lent with Ash Wednesday, a day where we are reminded that we are dust. And to dust we will return. Every Lent opens with a service, a service of silence and meditation. And now on Good Friday, at the close of the Lenten season, we are called to reflect upon the gut-wrenching, cut-to-the-heart eternal truth that our sin and the debt for our sin was paid for in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Psalm 40, verse 6, we read, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In the miracle that is the incarnation, the Lord Jesus became like us in every respect, remained sinless, but still subjected himself to mortality and to the pains of death. And so now, in its beautiful uncomfortableness, 
Lent calls us to reflect upon the mortality, not just of ourselves, but of Christ himself. To reflect that in the mysterious working of the divine plan of salvation, the author of life himself paid the wages of sin by being lifted up on the cross, laying down his own life, so that all who believe in him would inherit life in his name. Commenting on this first word, A.W. Pink draws our attention to the posture of Christ within this moment. While he is on the cross, Pink notes that Jesus' posture is that of prayer. He proclaims how significant and how instructive. His public ministry had opened with prayer, and here we see it closing with prayer. As we begin our considerations of these seven last words of Christ on the cross, let's take a moment and meditate on the heaviness as well as the theological ramifications of this first word. Father, forgive them. Note immediately the work of the Godhead on full display. As the Son of Man cries out in his death rose from the cross, Father, Forgive them. Forgive those who have nailed your son to a cross. Who have lifted him up to where the crowds can stare and mock and gaze at his nakedness and his shame. Father, forgive those who have falsely accused your son. Speaking lies about his character and about his message. Father, forgive those who have abandoned your son. Father, forgive those who called for the release of a man guilty of murder instead of the release of the God-man who is innocent of every sin. Father, forgive them. Even while on the cross, Christ had already begun to take up his intercessory role of praying to the Father for us, of praying for the forgiveness of the sins of the world which put him on the cross in the first place. Forgiving sin is a divine prerogative, says Pink. Forgiveness of sin is an authority that rests only in the hands of Yahweh, who is our creator and the creator of heaven and earth. Never before in his earthly ministry had Jesus called upon the Father to forgive the sins of others until this moment. Until this moment, he was the one to forgive, vividly displaying, as he told the scribes and the Pharisees, that he had the divine authority and prerogative on earth to forgive sin. But let's not miss the importance of what is going on in this scene. Jesus said, the Son of Man has the power on earth to forgive sins, but within this moment, he is no longer on earth. Within this moment, he had been lifted up from the earth. In this moment, while on the cross, Christ was acting as our substitute, as our propitiation, as our wrath-bearing sacrifice. In this moment, nailed to the cross in our place, as our substitute, Jesus takes up his position, not as the forgiver of sins, but as the perfect mediator between us and the Father. 
St. Augustine writes, he says, Do not delight in the sign of the wood of the cross, but of the sign of the one hanging upon it. Christ prayed, Father, forgive them when he was hanging on the cross, and he was looking at the people who were raving against him, putting up with their insults, and yet praying for them. And while they were killing him, Augustine says, the doctor was curing the sick with his blood. These words were not futile and they were not without effect. Brothers and sisters, he says, from these words, we should understand why we are Christians. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Our tendency in this clause of this prayer, the second part, is to place emphasis upon the ignorance of the crowds. However, the emphasis here is not on the fact that they do not know, but rather they, they do not know what. They are unaware, yes, but not of the fact that they had nailed Jesus of Nazareth to a cross. Rather, they did not understand the cosmic significance of what they had done. They were ignorant, says Arthur Pink, of the enormity of their crime. But just in case, and just because they did not know what they were doing, that did not excuse them from the significance of the sin. Within this second clause, the second part of his prayer, we see God's estimate of sin and its resulting guilt and the blindness of humanity's heart. Sin is always sin in the eyes of God, whether we are aware of it or not. Sins of ignorance need the atonement of God just as much as intentional sins do. God is holy, and God will not lower his standard of righteousness to the level of our ignorance. Consider simply a child who lies so that he or she does not get into trouble. Even though the child might not fully comprehend what they have done, the lie itself is still a sin. And the child, whomever he or she might be, is still held eternally culpable for their sin before a holy God and a just God and a righteous God. And even that sin of a child's lie put Jesus on the cross. Ignorance is not innocence. Sins of ignorance also need divine forgiveness. And so tonight, as we consider the crucified, the shamed, and the cursed Christ, let us meditate upon how high God's righteousness and holiness and his standard is, but also how great our need is. And let us praise him for the atonement of immeasurable sufficiency, which cleanses us from all sin. Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. Um, our Father in heaven, to whom your crucified Son prayed for the forgiveness of those who did not know what they were doing, grant that we too may be included in that prayer. Whether we sin out of ignorance or intention, be merciful to us and grant us your acceptance and peace. In the name of Jesus Christ, our suffering Savior. Amen. Amen.
The second word, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It is by no accident that the second word of Christ followed the first. When Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, he proclaimed the universal mercy available for everyone who throughout time has declared trust in his sacrifice. In saying, today you will be with me in paradise, he applied that mercy to a particular individual. His prayer to the Father was answered. Matthew 27, 38-34 reads, Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he deserves him, desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Of all those who heaped hatred and bile upon the crucified Christ, only one changed, only one repented, only one cried out for mercy, and not from his tormentors, nor from those whom he had injured with his theft. No, the robber sought mercy from a half-dead man nailed to a wooden frame. In the end, God will be glorified, whether in mercy or in judgment. These two wooden crosses behind me represent mercy and judgment, one with ropes bound, the other with ropes cut free. Each thief faced the harsh judgment of Babylon, but only one feared more the one who could do worse than take his life. He feared the one who could grant him life, and in that secured that promise of paradise. At Jesus' trial, when Caiaphas demanded that he defend himself against false witnesses, Jesus remained silent. When Pilate gave him opportunity to refute the charges made against him, Jesus remained silent. When Herod offered his favor in exchange for a miracle, Jesus remained silent. When the crowd cried out for Barabbas, Jesus made no appeal. But when a guilty man sought mercy, Jesus spoke with complete authority. Jesus answered, yes. There is no doubt in his statement. He promised not only paradise, but paradise with him for a life wasted, but redeemed at its desperate end by faith. God was a thief's exceeding great reward. God's sublime atonement was abundant at the cross, even before the darkness fell and the earth shook and the temple veil rent in two. 
The crowd remained un unmoved that no one of us might take this grace for granted. But one man was saved that no one of us need despair. Not long before this scene, James and John had bought, had sought a favor from Jesus that they might sit at his right and left hand in his kingdom. He replied by asking whether they thought they were able to drink of his cup. Well, John was there at the cross. He saw a man on Jesus' right and on his left, and they were drinking of his cup, if only at a human level. Indeed, John and James would eventually drink of this cup as well, but they would first also receive the promise, you will be with me in paradise. Even as the hell of the Father's righteous wrath loomed before him, Jesus offers paradise. O oh Lord Jesus Christ, in your agony, you showed compassion to a man who recognized his sinfulness and your holiness. You gave him yourself, Jesus Christ, the gift of eternal life. We thank you for that same indescribable gift you give to us. Help us to show such compassion to the lost so that they too may dwell in paradise with you. In your holy name we pray. Amen. And then behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. This is a difficult one. Um, it's, I mean, it's, it's like the others in that the deeper you go, you find that it just doesn't have a bottom. It just keeps going the more you dig into it. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a danger with any of these verses about Mary in saying too much. You know, you can, the, the more you talk about Mary, you either um, err by reducing her or you err by exalting her. It's better just not to talk about her <laughs> more often than not. Um, so what I'm about to say, I'll say as, with as much care and humility as I can manage. Um, the way, this, the way this verse is normally interpreted is that with this third saying, we have a, a stunning example of Christ's care and attention and compassion towards his mother 
while being tortured to death, he's still providing for her needs. He is making sure before he dies that she'll be cared for. Um, and while that's true, and, and that's definitely true, but, but there is more here that we could say, and there's a sort of mystery to it because Well, we don't, we don't know that Joseph's dead at this point. We assume he is, but we don't know that. Um, we do know that Christ has siblings. Um, and, you know, by custom, that would be their responsibility, right? Um, we don't really even know that, that Christ was taking care of Mary daily. I mean, during his ministry, I mean, we, we have examples in Scripture where he was actively avoiding her. Who is my mother? Um, yes, she was being cared for. Um, but there's something else going on here. This is, this is more than just, just, this is, there's something cosmic going on beyond, beyond the physical needs that need to be met. And we know that because the cross is a cosmic event. I mean, this is the new creation. This is the remaking of the world. I mean, uh, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the new creation, the new Eden. It is finished. That's hearkening back to Genesis 1. So, so anything that happens here at the cross is of cosmic importance, right? So, so what does that mean for this verse? Um, Mary is a fulfillment of Eve. And it's not really so much about either of them as it is the fact that it's that the seed is now here, right? The seed that was promised is, at this moment, crushing the head of the serpent. Yeah? And that was the promise, was that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Right? Mary, in bearing the Christ child, fulfills the promise that was given to Eve. Way back at the beginning of the story. Now in the first creation. The, the first Adam. Named her. Mother of the living. And. Um, throughout church history. You know. The, the father's. And the theologians have all sort of had this understanding that Mary's role in the gospel is at least in part to fulfill what was begun with Eve. Um, the, the, it, it's no coincidence that the name Ave is, is literally a, a development of that word. 
It's a, it's a, it's a fulfillment of the name Eve. Now here, the second creation. It's not just, uh, son, behold, the person that you're going to be responsible for taking care of. It's behold your mother. We have another naming of mother here at the new creation, just as we had in the first one, the naming of the mother. Here we are, behold your mother, and then behold your son. This is a this is a fulfillment of the institution of the family way back in Genesis, the giving of the family and the command to have offspring to be fruitful, and to take over the planet. Yeah. That is what we see here. At the, at the start of the church, the creation of the church, which is what the cross is, we have the institution of the spiritual family. The mother and the son in spirit. Right? And the blessing... For this to be her offspring. It's the first generation of the church. And then from the apostles at Pentecost. And Mary was at Pentecost, by the way. We have this explosion. And the church is fruitful and multiplies and takes over the world. And here we are some 2,000 years later. And we are living out this spiritual family. So, take a moment and look around. Turn to your right and to your left. Go ahead and do it. Behold your mothers. Behold your daughters. Your fathers and sons. Behold your brothers and your sisters in Christ. This is, this is the family of God ordained and instituted by Christ on the cross and still being lived out today. O blessed Savior, who in your hours of greatest suffering expressed compassion for your mother and made arrangements for her care, grant that we who seek to follow your example may show our concern for the needs of others, reaching out to provide for those who suffer in our human family, and in our spiritual family. Hear this, our prayer, for your mercy's sake. Amen.
The fourth word. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We heard Jesus first express concern for those involved in his execution. He asked his heavenly Father to forgive them. Jesus then spoke words of eternal comfort and joy to one of the two being executed alongside him. Jesus took time to lovingly attend to the needs of the woman who bore him and one who pointed to our spiritual family. Then Jesus shifted his focus from others and, quite frankly, onto himself. For me, it's the most deafening sound to ever pierce the heavens. This cry from Jesus from the cross about the ninth hour. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus shifted dramatically from praying to his father to painfully pleading to his God. The intimate fellowship between these two members of the Godhead was broken. To forsake means to abandon, to desert, to leave in straits. Some want to reason that Jesus being forsaken by God really did not happen, that Jesus was merely quoting the first verse of David's Psalm 22. They tell us that Jesus is quoting the verse as symbolic of the suffering he now endures. Jesus is, after all, deity. Jesus, the second member of the triune Godhead, was at that moment experiencing as the Son of Man the full, horrible judgment and wrath of the Holy God. It seems out of character. As a young boy, Jesus declared he must be about his father's business, and we know he was not referring to his surrogate father, Joseph, but to God the Father. So tight was their union that what Jesus saw the Father do, He did. 
Whatever the Father commanded, Jesus obeyed. Jesus honored the Father, loved the Father, heard the Father declare Him to be my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. But now Jesus cries out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Something happened. Sin. The fact is, we're a messed up world. Things we should do, we don't. Things we shouldn't do, these we do. Need specifics? We lie, steal, cheat, harbor grudges, speak unkindly. We live fleshly lives. Now that's soft-sounding language, I know. God says, now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Like passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Like anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language. If that's not a comprehensive enough list, we place other gods before us. We take on God's name and then live counterculture to it. I wonder, is any day really holy to us? When it comes to honoring our father and mother, we try to make it a one day out of the year occasion. Even after almost seven decades on planet earth i thankfully have no one in my circle of friends who has physically killed someone with his own hands but i will not ask for a show of hands from anyone who has ever wished another dead and what of our wants unlimited Unchecked, unholy. God recorded a summary statement about us. There's no one who does good. No, not one. Every last one of us knows the bondage of corruption full well. How in the world did it get so bad? Through one man sin, sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In fact, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. I suppose you've heard this. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Jesus spoke clearly and candidly about it. 
He said, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he had killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Puts a question on the table for me. Is God unjust to inflict wrath? God's holy. He is a righteous judge. And because God is love, he did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all because of our offenses. It's a one and done situation. Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. At precisely that moment, God had laid the iniquity of us all upon Jesus, the pure and spotless Lamb, our escape goat, Jesus, who knew no sin, clearly at that moment became sin for us. God's love is pure. It's holy. It's just. God's wrath is in perfect harmony with all of His divine attributes. His wrath is His right and righteous response to sin. By taking our sin upon Himself, Jesus drank the full cup of God's wrath. It was a cup that he asked to be taken from him, but willingly submitted to drink. There's much mystery in this precious, despairing moment. Psalm 22 also declares, For he, God, has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. In the midst of all of this, let us remember the Bible says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. But let's not forget, the Bible also says that there will be others. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. O blessed Lord Jesus, you bitterly suffered alone on the cross and experienced the anguish of separation. Come and be with us in times of despair and loneliness. And please transform our sadness into fellowship with you. We pray also for our sisters and brothers throughout the world who experience alienation, oppression, and aloneness. Comfort and support them with your presence and bring them to a place of rest in you through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Amen.
fifth word is I thirst. Jesus, uh, in this case, brings up what seems to be a physical need in a moment, uh, in that moment, uh, a physical uh, longing to fill a need, and that is his thirst. Um, and of course, everything that is said in Scripture is none, none of it's by accident. It's all meant to be there. So we don't see Jesus, it was not reported that Jesus said, I hurt, even though he certainly was in a great deal of pain. Uh, he didn't say, um, you know, I'm tired, even though he was no doubt extremely exhausted uh, beyond probably what many of us could endure, if any of us. But despite all these things, the, the recorded thing that he brings up is that he's thirsty. He's, he thirsts. And so the first, you know, reality of this is kind of obvious, and that is that he uh, had lost a lot of bodily fluids at this point. You know, he had bled a lot. Uh, his, uh, you know, due to the, the thrashing and the, the flogging with the whip and so forth, uh, he had no doubt uh, bled a great deal and uh, sweated through a lot of this. And he had lost a lot of uh, water in his body just through this process. I mean, if you've ever uh, exerted yourself really hard in the yard working or doing anything, you know, that, that made you sweat a lot, you get thirsty. Well, Jesus was probably an extreme example in this case of having gone through a lot of such things as that. So he was thirsty and, um, and we're reminded again, uh, as we often are, that Jesus was a man. He was a human being. And he got hungry, he got tired, and he got thirsty. He felt pain. Uh, earlier in his life, if he, as a carpenter, if he had hit his thumb with a hammer, which he probably did at some point, no doubt it hurt him no less than it hurts us when we do it. So, he was, he was thirsty in this case. He wanted something to drink. Like this, in this way, he is like us in the way that we have physical needs. He has physical needs. He had physical needs in that case. He is a man. He is a person. But it's more than that. It also, there's also an element here that fulfills scripture uh, in this. So John, uh, in his gospel, harkens back. Jesus harkens back in the statement. In Psalm 69, it says that they gave me poison for food and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. And this is exactly what occurs in the gospel because as you know, the probably know the story uh, around this statement that he, he says this and they stick, a, someone sticks a sponge on the end of a pole puts it up to him and gives him something to drink. And what they give him to drink is vinegar, sour wine. <clears throat> so this is a direct fulfillment of Psalm 69, 21 in that regard. It could not be more exact than that. At the declaration of Christ's thirst, 
that sponge is raised, soaked in the sour wine of Jesus' lips. Similarly, much of what happens on the cross echoes Psalm 22. It is in Psalm 22 we come across the phrase that, that is covered tonight, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Additionally, verse 15 says, my mouth is dried up like a pot shard and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. So you have two Psalms there that uh, speak to the thirstiness of the death of Christ and how it relates to thirst. So he fulfills the Old Testament prophecy. What was this drink? It was vinegar. It was probably the vinegar mixed with water that the Roman soldiers drank called Pascha. It was also a drink uh, not just of the soldiers, but of the lower classes and of slaves. So Jesus has now gotten to the point where he is drinking the drink of slaves, of slavery. He is very low from his eternal glory at this point. He is close to death. He is about to die. And he is drinking the liquid of, of even slaves. <clears throat> this is a historical fact we know from outside scriptures about this drink. So the Bible here is true to history. Earlier, Jesus made the best wine you could imagine for a wedding. And now he has to partake in the worst bitter drink that anybody drinks. That would make one probably just want to spit it out if you're looking for something refreshing. This is not the only time Jesus has requested something to drink. He asked the woman from Samaria, sitting at the well, he said, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus had offered a drink far greater than this, but he now needs a drink in his humanity and an hour of sacrifice. Eating and drinking in the Old Testament in Jesus' time had multiple functions which went beyond just the pragmatic fulfillment of, of our body's thirst. It created community, it settled agreements and contracts, and accompanied covenants, was part of worship and religious feasts, and it marked times of joy and major moments like weddings. In a sense, the sour drink stands as a drink offering given in context of the perfect sacrifice, you see. In Leviticus 23, it reads, and you shall present with the bread seven lambs a year, seven lambs a year old without blemish, and one bull from the herd and two rams. They shall be a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. In Numbers 28, on the Sabbath day, two male lambs a year without blemish, two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering mixed with oil and its drink offering. See, the offering for sin in the Old Testament could not be made without a drink offering. You had to have a drink offering with it. It could not be made merely with the lamb, which obviously we see here in this passage. It could not be made merely with the bread, but there has to be a drink offering as well. 
in the Old Testament sacrificial system. In a sense, Jesus points to this by bringing in a sort of picture of the drink offering, a type of the drink offering, and all the more showing himself to be the fulfillment of the law and the fulfillment of as being the true and real sacrifice that all the law and the prophets pointed to. Now the creator of all the seas and lands and rivers, the one who made the floodwaters come forth, was now thirsty for someone to offer him a drink and the sacrifice. God is shown here drinking a sort of wine of wrath as we read of in Revelation 14. It is only bitter drink that Jesus receives. It is not sweet. It is not uh, refreshing. It is bitter. And yet with this, with this and his death, he now offers his wine, eternal life, to all who will receive it. And that is his promise. So let us, brothers and sisters, thirst for righteousness. Let us thirst as Jesus did, but for the righteousness of God in all that we do. Oh, blessed, oh, most blessed Jesus, you thirsted and experienced pain for us. Kindle in our hearts a thirst for you that we may love you and serve you and lead others to find their rest in you. Remember, O oh Lord, all the sick and dying and deliver them from pain, granting them a glorious ending through Jesus Christ our Lord who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit forever. Amen. Amen. The sixth word, it is finished. In John 19.30, we read, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. How solemn and glorious is this word of Christ on the cross. Let's think about several things here, beginning with the sour wine, which equally well is vinegar. In this sense, the end of Christ's earthly ministry is very different from the beginning. In the previous verse of John 19, 29, it is mentioned that a jar full of sour wine was there. This reminded me of other jars full of wine in Jesus' ministry. We find them at the wedding in Cana and Galilee. Those jars held the best wine that has ever been produced, and Jesus began to show forth his glory through this miracle. So Jesus' ministry began with a miracle of joy. Weddings are joyful occasions. There's a lot of rejoicing in Cana. And obviously Jesus and his disciples were also filled with joy. 
Jesus' ministry begins with joy, but now his earthly sojourn with the disciples ends with bitterness, a jar full of sour wine. And as we just heard previously, Jesus fulfills every jot and tittle predicted of him in the Old Testament. In Psalm 69, 21, we read, And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. We also see in Psalm 75 that Jesus takes the place of the wicked, that would be us, by draining the cup of God's wrath to the dregs. The reference to the lifting up here would be the cross. Quote from Psalm 69, For not from the east or from the west, not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, of, a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. So it is finished now, as Christ actually pays for all of our sins, and he drains the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs. He drinks it all up. The wrath of God toward us is finished. It is finished. <clears throat> it is finished. All the prophecies concerning the first advent of the Messiah are completed. It is finished. All things necessary for our redemption are done. It is finished. There is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. The blood of the Redeemer has been shed like a crimson tide. It is finished. The full payment for all our sins is over. It is finished. God is now the just one and the justifier of all of us who have faith in Jesus. God maintains his apartness from sinners and also his oneness with them. It is finished. The full and complete demonstration of God's love for us is done. It is finished. Christ fully makes an end of all of our guilt before God. It is finished. Our days of being nobody are gone because we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. It is finished. Our depression is gone because Christ has borne it on the cross as his mental agony pressed down upon him with the force of a thousand dark nights of the soul. It is finished. Our anxiety is gone because Christ has never seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging bread. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. Now our Lord has accomplished all the Old Testament teaching and prophecy concerning the redemption of man. And since it is impossible for any person or army or kingdom to take his life from him, he bows his head and gives up his spirit. Jesus voluntarily lays down his life, even as his suffering brings him to death's door. The shepherd lays down his life for the sake of the sheep. Quote, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again, this charge I have received from my Father. It is finished. 
So now at the appropriate time, our Savior dismisses his spirit. He dies. Very shortly, his body will be placed in a tomb and sealed. His death on our behalf is done. It is finished. We have, made the right, we have been made the righteousness of God in him. You may have been a Christian for a long time. Won't you take this opportunity to glorify God for all the blessings that God has poured out on you through Christ? His kingdom goes on and on. There are many other sheep out there who need to believe and come into all the blessings that are theirs in Christ. The blood of Christ covers not only a multitude of sins, but also a multitude of sinners. It is finished. O Lord Jesus Christ, who finished the work that you were sent to do, enable us by your Holy Spirit to be faithful to our call. Grant us strength to bear our crosses and endure our sufferings, even unto death. Enable us to live and love so faithfully that we also become good news to the world, joining your witness, O Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. The seventh word, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. With these words, Jesus commended his spirit to the Father, quoting from Psalm 31 to the end devoted to the fulfillment of Scripture. After six hours upon the cross, after six words spoken from the cross, on the seventh hour, he spoke a seventh word of rest and rested from his completed work. This too is our rest in the hand of the Almighty Father. Indeed, it is right for us to declare this same faith in all things. Let the Father's will be done. He is to be trusted. We cast our spirits upon him he is the one who will cradle our spirits. Certainly there are times when it seems all is lost, darkness reigns, the enemy has had his way. Jesus made this statement for a reason. His face turned like flint, calm in the middle of a storm. Matthew and Mark both report simply that he cried out. Perhaps his followers were so anguished they didn't remember the words he spoke. It is not uncommon for times of high anguish to veil perception of what is happening. 
Jesus' disciples had already succumbed to panic. Everything they had expected crashing headlong into not only Roman might, but also that of their own people. And what of these disciples left alive in the darkness of promise? Most had scattered, just as their shepherd had said. But John had made his way to the cross and had seen Jesus' head droop lifeless, his eyes glazed in an empty stare. And there were the women, faithful as always. Mary saw the blood and water smeared around the rip in his side. Mary Magdalene and the others saw his skin hanging off him in shreds and heard the rattle of his spirit breathed out. Did the little group of followers help Joseph of Arimathea as he took charge of Jesus' gangling, clumsy corpse? We know that the women followed to see where he was buried, determined to serve him still the only way they knew how. Everything they expected had met with a sudden resounding end and just as he did at the completion of his creative work, Jesus rested on the seventh day. Then the darkness of night fell and Jesus' disciples entered into their own silent Sabbath. The one who had brought them together and led them daily for three years was suddenly gone just a week after being triumphantly greeted by massive crowds. All the forces that had opposed Jesus over that time had coalesced and overcome in a surprisingly swift, horrid way. Certainly these disciples were to be the next targets for the sake of his name. Does this sound at all familiar? They gathered together in hiding, not knowing if a Roman knock would come at the door. Didn't he say that if the world hated him, it would hate them as well? And what of the Sanhedrin? After their illegal arrest and trial of Jesus, would they also violate their precious Sabbath to come after them? Only 11 now, one of them suddenly a traitor, now hanging somewhere until his body rotted and fell to earth, bursting open. Hidden with them were the women, and certainly Mary and John related what they had seen at the cross and what they had heard, the confession of the thief, the blood and water spilling from Jesus' side, the testimony of the centurion, and these last seven statements. Sabbath law restricted what they could do on this day and how far away they could escape, even if they were so foolish as to venture out to see what officials might be doing. This was no day of rest for them. But this particular year, the Sabbath was something more. It was a high holy day. This particular year, the Sabbath was also the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And these were faithful Jewish men gathered in Jerusalem according to the law. This was no coincidence. The oven, unleavened bread and bitter herbs assigned for that feast spoke of suffering, a prophetic testimony of what awaited the suffering servant. For seven days, this food of penitence and purification would fill Jewish plates. 
but this year bitter grieving and blessed rest overlapped. And something more awaited these disciples. For this particular year, the very next day was the first day of the Feast of First Fruits. This also was not a coincidence. It was a testimony of the seed that died and dropped to the ground, only to sprout and bear much fruit. It was a celebration of the early harvest, when the spring season gave its bounty from the ground, and everyone knew it would be a year of great favor. These disciples were faithful Jews gathered in Jerusalem, and they would celebrate the Feast of First Fruits of the Dead. They awaited through the Sabbath, but they didn't know what for, but they would know at sunrise. O oh, most blessed Savior, you gave up your precious life to atone for our sin and conquer the powers of evil. Grant us the power to live in your name, confirm our faith, deepen our repentance, and strengthen us with your body and blood. And may we come to that heavenly rest where you dwell forever with your Father in the fellowship of the Spirit. Amen.
And darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. For the sun had stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And when all the people who had gathered to witness this saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. <laughs> 